my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The industry had a long history of resistance to change. As they went from the album format and vinyl to CDs, their view of technology was something to be rebuffed, not embraced. And technology is, you know, it's like an avalanche. If you're standing on a mountain and you see the avalanche coming at you, you either get out in front of it and you get on the leading edge or it's just going to bury you. Hi, I'm Bob Pittman. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing, where we explore that unique combination of data and analytics and the creative ideas that are behind the biggest business successes. 
Today we're exploring this world through the experiences and insights of someone who has an amazing career, was running MGM, Hawaiian Telecom, Krispy Kreme Donuts, and even the CEO of Enron as they went through their restructuring. But today he's here as the CEO of Warner Music Group. He's Steve Cooper. A Wharton MBA who started as an accountant and went on to become what some have described as the king of the turnaround world. He's the guy you call when you need to get out of the woods. He's had over 300 engagements, restructuring over $100 billion in debt. But for the last 11 years, he's been the CEO of Warner Music. And in that time, the company has doubled revenue, increased its total market value of the company 5X, and increased the equity by about 15X. Steve recently announced he'll be retiring next year. So we've got even more to talk about today. Steve, welcome. Thank you, Bob. Nice to be here. Well, we're glad to have you here. And before we jump into the meat of everything, I want to do you in 60 seconds. So you ready? Yep. Do you prefer New York City or L.A.? New York City. Cats or dogs? Cats. Track or football? Football. Boats or planes? Planes. Enron or Warner Music? Warner Music. Abbey Road or Pet Sounds? Abbey Road. Ed Sheeran or Justin Bieber? Ed Sheeran. Palm Springs or Palm Beach? Palm Springs. It's about to get a little harder. Childhood hero? Albert Einstein. First job? Well, my first job when I was post-16 was in Marbon Chemical in Gary, Indiana. Favorite city? London. Last vacation? Can't remember. <laughs> Favorite cocktail? Tequila on the rocks. Favorite TV show? Was probably Star Trek. Who would play you in a movie? Somebody short with not a lot of hair. <laughs> I have to ask you this one. Favorite radio station? Uh, 106.7 FM. And the biggest surprise about the music business? My biggest surprise was that in 2011, the business was organized the same way as it was in 1947. <laughs> okay, Steve. Before we get to the present, let's go back to the beginning. You're a doctor's son, Gary, Indiana. You're a high school athlete who got sidelined with back surgery. What are the lessons from Gary, from your parents, and from being a high school athlete and then being knocked out of the action? My parents really gave me, you know, my values, respect for other people, the concept of fair play. With respect to sports injuries, it set for me a pretty good example that, you know, if you're playing something and it's absolutely not working, whether it's because of talent or an injury, you got to find a different game to play, hopefully one that you really love and one that you can excel at. You left Gary, go to college in California. Was that part of this? Why California? Well... If you've ever spent a winter or a summer in Gary, you would find California unbelievably appealing. <laughs> it was really such a seismic change for me. What did your parents think of you being in California? Did they come visit? No, actually, during the four years I was in college, they came for my college graduation. When my mom saw the apartment I was living in as a senior, 
she not only refused to come in, she told me she was completely <laughs> shocked at what my apartment looked like versus what my room at home looked like. After you graduated, you went on to business school at Wharton, University of Pennsylvania, the other coast. So now you've been the Midwest, you've been the West Coast, now you're the East Coast. Was that deliberate or by accident? And why business school? When I graduated, I was just a few months past 21 years old. The thought of full-time employment, having had really a fun-filled four years in California, was just not something that, frankly, at the time I could wrap my head around. So I decided my best course of action was to apply to graduate school. I was literally the youngest guy in my business school class. The day it started, everybody was in sports coats or suits and ties. I was 21 from California. I had a pair of jeans on, some sneakers and a t-shirt. And a professor said, you, pointing at me, this is the graduate division, not the undergraduate division. And I said, well, sir, I'm, I'm here for the graduate division. And he shaked his head and muttered, what was the world coming to? <laughs> so that was my first day of graduate school. This is business school in the 1970s. And as you say, it looked quite a bit different than it does today. What were they teaching you about business in the 1970s? Well, they took a fairly thoughtful, actually analytical approach to most aspects of business, finance, marketing, labor, organizational theory. Computers had rolled around by that time. We learned programming with a card deck and punch cards. What I did learn was to ask a lot of questions, go beyond just corporate speak, to look at real data, real information, real analytics. That really served as kind of the cornerstone for what I did for most of my professional career up to and through today. So you first worked as an accountant in the predecessor company to Deloitte. You got a taste for company reorganizations. And by 1986, you left to start your own company. Talk a little bit about what the catalyst was to leave that, obviously a prestigious place, and take the chance on betting on yourself. Well, I started in... 1970 and left them literally to the day 15 years later. And during that time, while it was, to your point, a large, prestigious organization, it had morphed from a small, tight partnership where I knew every partner and they knew me. And then in the late 70s, early 80s, all of these large professional firms just had explosive growth through acquisitions and mergers. And it really changed the nature of the environment. It went from something that resembled really a partnership to, you know, just big business. For me, you know, I'd established three rules for my life. And part was life short, you gotta have fun. The second was no assholes, because life's short, you got to have fun. And the third was 
I treat people fairly and I expect to be treated the same way. It just became a large anonymous business. If the world there wasn't something that I enjoyed, I had to go create my own world and my own future. And so it became a pretty simple decision. And you did. You had great success, as I mentioned at the top, all these successes you had in really transforming, restructuring companies, in essence, saving companies. Let's get a couple of lessons that you learned during that period of time. Why do companies get in trouble financially? Well, oftentimes it's because they didn't see the mega trends that were developing that either because of government regulations, competition, or technology had not only the possibility, but the probability of dramatically changing the world in which they operated. A lot of companies just moved away drastically from their core competencies. You know, they figured that if they could play basketball well, they'd be able to play baseball well, or they'd be able to play soccer well. But companies like many, many athletes don't really have the capacity to go from one sport to another sport without incurring a lot of pain. Many of the companies that I dealt with underestimated the risks associated with dramatic unplanned growth and the risks that came not only financially, but operationally, organizationally, culturally. You know, the stress that publicly held companies, the board and management field to constantly be on a steady northward path for revenue growth, bottom line growth, cash flow growth. In order to do that, a lot of people would make short-term decisions that could impact the company's long-term health. You know, it's kind of like an athlete. They can juice their performance by using steroids or other enhancing drugs. One may accelerate their muscle mass and their strength, but at the end of the day, the harm it causes makes it not worth it. You know, there are really two kinds of management teams and leaders. Those that manage from hindsight and react, and those that manage from foresight and are proactive. The foresight and the proactivity creates more often than not insight. Many of the management teams I worked with would blame everybody and their brother or sister for the failure of the companies, but they would never look at themselves at being at the heart of the matter. And so one of the lessons that I've always carried forward is that whenever there's a fuck up, the first place you ought to look is in the mirror and not allow the proverbial crap to roll downhill. More on math and magic right after this quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure, I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. 
Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go like, how do I detach from my, this idea of what, is that that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know, okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Math & Magic. Let's hear more from my conversation with Steve Cooper. How do you think about corporate culture? What is it doing for you? How do you build it? How do you use it? Here's what we try and do inside of Warner. There are four words, communication, cooperation, coordination, and collaboration. 
when a company does those four things well, there's almost always a spike in creativity. Those four words are the glue that create a culture, a team. And when you play as a team, you will always outplay a bunch of people that don't play that way and don't relate to each other that way. But getting people to communicate, collaborate, cooperate, and coordinate is a full-time, never-ending undertaking in any business that's got any level of scale. Let's take that and let's jump to Warner Music now. One of the three big music companies, Lynn Blavatnik buys Warner Music back in 2011. He saw something that others did not. And at the time, most thought it was a bad acquisition. And he paid way too much, according to the gossip of the moment. And then to make matters worse, Gasp, he brings in someone from outside the music business and entertainment industry to run it, you. Let's unpack that a little bit. At what stage in the acquisition did you get involved? I got involved a couple months before we closed the acquisition. The plan, once the company was acquired, I was going to be the chairman of the board and kind of keep an eye on Len's investment. But Edgar Brownman Jr., very bright guy, great guy, he was the CEO. He decided to move on to other things. And um, the three of us were at lunch one day. Edgar announced that we didn't want to run it day to day anymore. And Len looked at me at lunch and says, you don't mind doing this, do you? How hard can it be? <laughs> what did you think you were getting into, Steve? Well, you know, first of all, it was pretty obvious that the industry was contracting. The major players had all shifted through uh, mergers and acquisitions. The industry was in survival mode. The industry had a long history of fighting against each other as opposed to looking at what was happening in the broader world around them. You know, if the industry had played their cards differently, they would have been the iTunes store. But they had a resistance to change. As they went from the album format and vinyl to CDs, they were just raining money. Their view of technology was something to be rebuffed, not embraced. And technology is, you know, it's like an avalanche. If you're standing on a mountain and you see the avalanche coming at you, you either get out in front of it and you get on the leading edge, or it's just going to bury you. The industry at one point had an opportunity to do that if they had interpreted Napster differently, but they didn't. And as a result, the contraction, the shrink, the disaggregation of the album into singles. It was going to be a brave new world that the industry was reluctant to embrace. You know, it's interesting, probably, I guess, 20 years earlier, I was in those meetings at Warner Communications back when I was running MTV, and there were people talking about the CD and what it might be. And there was this real fight over the CD. There were these folks, very smart people, 
who said the CD will be the worst thing that ever happens to the music business because it's a master quality recording and the pirates will use it to kill us. In that situation, unlike what you were just talking about, the forces for let's use the technology won, and they embraced the CD. And as you know, that was probably one of the greatest decades of growth the record industry has ever seen uh, when people got rid of their LPs and transferred it all over to CDs. And you're exactly right. I also was there when Napster came along. The same sort of folks said we can't embrace this because digital will kill the music business. And this time the conservative forces won and they decided to fight it rather than embrace it. When you came along, you know, the business was at that point where he had already suffered that terrible damage from really being out of the action for 10 years and being diminished. How did you get comfortable that that was not the future, that there was really something else going on? I mean, look, you should never get comfortable. The minute you get too comfortable about your business is when you get slammed. You know, historically, you see big technology shifts come every decade. We did see this emerging technology streaming and this, you know, little Swedish company who had a an approach that was based on access, not ownership. The theory was that they could offer up virtually all of the world's music in a convenient, easy way to use. And people for a relatively nominal price could have access to all of the world's music 24-7. It was a relationship that changed the fundamental nature of how people looked at music. It was very clear at least to me, that if we clung to the download model, that we were never, ever, as an industry or a business, going to see a turnaround of any reasonable degree. Whereas if we embrace and promoted this kind of seismic shift in both the way people thought about music and interfaced with music, the team at Warner, the board members, we made a collective decision that we were going to double down and go all in on streaming as one of the key components of Warner's future. Streaming ended up being more than 50% of our business. You not only bet on Daniel with Spotify, but somehow you got Apple to do something they said they would never do, which is go into a subscription service business. Amazon went into the business that you managed to find others that would build out platforms to give you more ways to reach the consumers and more ways to use your music. How did you think about that? Well, it was pretty clear to Apple that this technology had legs, the iTunes store having peaked and that beginning to contract because, you know, it was just a digital analog to a physical sale. And Amazon will give anything a try. 
YouTube at the same time was developing as a streaming business relative to video. Audio streaming, while it was a leap for the industry, was already on relatively sound technological footing. You know, it's interesting. We sort of were on the parallel journey with you because for radio, we expose people to new music. We tell them about new ideas. We explain who the artists are. We put them in context. I think the number is something like 70% of Spotify users say the main way they discover new music is still FM radio. Well, look, I think radio is still a very, very important component across all of the aspects of music, whether it be discovery, what's trending, the preservation of musical history in catalog. It's like as many things transition to the digital world, you know, the demise of X, Y, and Z has been predicted, but I think radio is going to be around forever. It certainly reaches tens upon tens of millions of people every day. It's a medium where they utilize for figuring out what the weather is, where the traffic is, what the news is, where the music is. The difference between the digital vehicles and radio is primarily the linear of radio versus the demand nature of streaming. We've got our hosts, which are really make us so different. They bond with the audience. People trust them. And when they start telling you about a new artist or a new song, or by the way, a new song from an established artist, it creates the conversation really and embeds that in the culture. We, you know, we in our company are probably doing the same thing you're doing, which is looking ahead. One of the areas we're looking at is Web3, blockchain, tokens, metaverse. You've been really active in this, Steve, and sort of a hallmark of yours. Talk a little bit about next step, because we're not there yet, but you're already working on what that's going to be. If you think about the internet that went from just, you know, web one was just simply kind of information and search. Web two was really social platforms and interacting with one another. Web three is kind of building these immersive communities online through gaming, live streaming, like literally building worlds where common communities grow up. Now, I think Web 2 isn't going to go away. It'll be with us for a long, long time. Web 3, it's going to take, I don't know, three or four, five, ten years for it to begin to really illuminate all the possibilities that it holds but they'll be able to coexist as Web3 grows and as Web2 continues to mature. What I do see is that there will be more and more people spending more and more time in a world where they have a hand in its creation. What Web3 will do, Bob, is allow people that are now fans to become players. It will allow people to be the person that they hope they would be or want to be 
in a community that they have helped create in a world where they feel as if they are part of it and where that world makes them feel that way as well. You can see in our world today, people are going to want to create and find better worlds. They'll look at virtual worlds where they can live the way they want to live. I think it holds an enormous world of possibilities. People ought to regularly watch several movies. One is The Terminator, where we're fighting the machines we created. One is The Matrix, where we're just the batteries for the stuff we've created. You know, and one is WALL-E, where we just live in a virtual world. I think of the three possibilities, I'm betting on WALL-E. So, a little more mundane. You bought Parlophone, you and Len. It increased your market share, but it really turbocharged your earnings as well. At that moment, of course, the conventional wisdom was you had overpaid. Oh my God, what a stupid price. Today, it seems like a bargain. As an industry, are we going to see more consolidation? Are the indies going to be pulled into the major companies? Or is most of the effort going to be on new technology like Web3? I think that it'll be both. You know, what the internet has done is democratized access, but what you can't democratize is talent. When you look at something approximating 100,000 new tracks being uploaded to iHeart Digital or SoundCloud, Spotify, Amazon, Apple every day, it is almost impossible for an individual artist to break through in the world of music. I see music curators like iHeart, and I look at companies like us that have a global footprint, skills that go from alpha to omega, and the financial resources to be able to help those with truly great talent maneuver their way through those 100,000 tracks a day, whether it be Web 2, traditional streaming, Web 3, immersive, Web 4, God knows what that's going to be. I see the role of companies like Warner becoming more critical to the success of songwriters and artists and more critical to, you know, working with people like yourselves, Spotify, Apple, and others in the curation of really, really great music and wonderful artists. So let's jump coming toward the end here. If you could give your 21-year-old self some advice, what would that advice be? I would have been more open-minded and I would have told myself, notwithstanding, I was convinced I knew everything <laughs> and was right about everything, that I really didn't know much at all. More often than not, I had no idea what I was talking about. You sounded persuasive, though, Steve. Let's jump to your latest news here. You announced you're going to step down next year. I don't know if I should call it retirement or you're going to go do something else. You've been on an incredible tear. I mean, this has been one of the great success stories in media and entertainment 
What made you decide it was time to step down? You know, I believe that after a certain amount of time in the fishbowl, your view used to be more objective when you're just first starting, can become more subjective over time. What I believe is the right thing for Warner is a fresh set of eyes, a not only understanding, but an appreciation for Web 2, for Web 3, where the company's got to go. Somebody that has the time and the energy to chart the course over the next five to 10 years. I don't want to start something that I know in my heart of hearts, I'm never going to be able to finish. I remember 2002, I was agonizing about deciding I wanted to retire. But actually, the minute I did it and announced it, I felt like the weight of the world had come off my shoulders. How have you felt once you announced this? Did you feel anything different? Did it have an impact for you? It kind of creates a sense of freedom. I've got a fairly long glide path here, so it'll give the board time to noodle through the right successor. And the fact that it's out, it's public, you know, it's not something rolling around in my head that I haven't articulated. It feels great. So we're going to wrap up, and we always wrap up these episodes the same way. It's a tribute to those folks that are great at the analytics and see the world as math, and to those people who just have those genius ideas that pop in their heads, math and magic. We'd like you to add to the Honor Society some of the people you think deserve it. So if you think about it, who is the best math person you know in business? And then who is the best magician? Well, I think the best magician is George Lucas. He created worlds that people never even dreamed of, and he spawned generations of people that, through imagination and creativity, created art that I just find mind-boggling. The greatest mathematician, his impact, I think, has been beyond belief is Einstein. He, in much of the way that Lucas did for other worlds, did the same thing for math. I would like to believe that time is a river, that one of these days, you and I will figure out how to backstroke in. Yes, we will. David Eagleman, was it him who said that time is probably a circle and it just stays in a loop? Hope that's true because we'll be coming around to it again. Steve Cooper, great friend king of transformations, an extraordinary visionary and leader. Thanks for being here today and enjoy that retirement thing. Thank you, Bob. I appreciate it. Here are a few lessons I picked up in my conversation with Steve. One, don't abandon your core competencies. Like an athlete, just because you're good at one sport doesn't mean you'll succeed at another. Two, communication, collaboration, cooperation, coordination. As Steve said, those four traits build a strong culture and encourage creativity and teamwork. And three, embrace technology. Like an avalanche, you're not gonna win by fighting it. You must get in front of it. I'm Bob Pittman, thanks for listening. 
That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Susan Ward for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Marissa Brown for pulling research. Our editors, Derek Clements, Mary Dew, and Ryan Murdoch. Our producer, Morgan Lavoie. Our executive producer, Nikki Etor. And of course, Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time. More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. (laughs) You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's Reality starting May 8th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.